Our Father, we do thank you for this great privileged time to come together as your people to enjoy the ministry of music and the ministry of your word and the ministry of the one another's as we gather together. We thank you for your good and kind design. And we thank you even for the imagery and the metaphors that you've given to us to show us the nearness that we share with you and with one another. The imagery of being sons and daughters, children of God of the same family, same father, same hope, same salvation, same loves, same joys, these things that we share together. And we thank you. Thank you that everything about you is beautiful and wonderful and good, and it is a delight to know you. May we evermore increase in our understanding of that delight and and live in light of it. We ask you now that as we open your word together, that you would, by your spirit, um, teach us and lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, open up your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Peter, the book of 1 Peter. Again, we'll, 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Now, uh, do you remember that last week we began what is a transition in the letter of 1 Peter, a transition from what was an emphasis primarily on the theology of our hope, so you could say an emphasis on doctrine, who we are in Christ, what our hope is in Christ, what we long for. And he's transitioning now, as we looked at last week in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2, over into this next section where it's not an absence of theology and doctrine, of course, but it is an emphasis, rather, on the way that we are to flesh out this hope in a fallen world as we await our soon and returning king. And the theme that runs throughout this section Really a, a main idea, a universal principle, a basic principle that runs throughout this next session is this. That submission to human authority demonstrates Christ's lordship and it glorifies God. That's the idea. Submission to human authority demonstrates Christ's lordship, that is his authority, his honor, his role as king of kings and lord of lords. And it's how we glorify God in this world. Submission is... Part and parcel with the gospel, with gospel faith, the gospel call. Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, Luke adds daily, and follow me. He must lose his life that he might gain it. It is a complete commitment to the the lordship of Jesus Christ, trusting in him as Savior, following him as Lord and God. And what might seem at first paradoxical is this, that our submission to Christ is demonstrated in our submission to others. In our submission to others, and particularly our submission to human authority. So there is no obedience to Christ where there is not submission to other people, to offices, to human structures, to government, to human relation roles that we have within the home and within society. All of this is summed up or bears the mark of reality when there is an attitude of submission, an attitude of submission. That's not something that's popular in our culture. It's really not popular in any culture for that matter. I mean, basic to our American 
spirit is that of independence, that we submit to no one. We are our own man by our own strength, by our own power, for our own glory, by our own authority, by our own autonomous self, by our own self-rule, that we will make, do, and achieve whatever it is that we set our minds to. And that runs antithetical to the gospel, to what it means to be yielded to the lordship of Jesus Christ. So I want to just use that idea to lead us into this next section. And what we're going to look at this morning is four principles of submission that are essential to grasp in our understanding of the gospel and how to glorify Christ in this world. Now, as I'll mention in just a bit, and as I'll read for us here, he's going to lead into this idea through our submission to human government. And not next week, of course, I won't be here, but after that, when we get back into 1 Peter, we'll take some time to look at that idea specifically of what it means to live in submission to the Lordship of Christ under human government and in a fallen world. But this morning, I want to look at the more central and fundamental idea that runs as a theme throughout all of Scripture and this section, namely that idea of submission to Christ as fruit of our understanding the gospel and glorifying God in this world. So begin with me as I read in chapter 2, verse 13, and I'll read down to verse 17. And then we'll look at these principles together. Actually, let's begin in verse 11, and I'll read from 11 to 17 of 1 Peter chapter 2. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, Fear God and honor the king. Now, as I mentioned before, this opening line, submit yourself to the Lord's sake for, to every human institution, is now Peter's address of how we are to glorify God in this world. What does it look like to keep our behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that the thing in which they slander us as evildoers, they may be proven wrong? God may be glorified. And ultimately, as he applies at the end of verse 12, that those who are slanderers at one point may actually become believers in the gospel of Jesus Christ through the authenticity of our testimony as it's worked out in our lives, as our faith is worked out in our lives and our obedience to Christ. So this is how we are to keep our behavior excellent among the Gentiles by submitting here in verse 13 to human authority. And again, submission is hard for us to hear. Most often when we think of the idea of submission, we're thinking really of forced subordination. In other words, being made to do something against our will and against our desires. That's generally how we think of submission. And there are, of course, examples of that. I, I thought of biblically, just First Peter, when Jesus said that eventually when you get old, you're going to be led somewhere where you don't want to go. And that, of course, is referring to how he would die and how he would glorify God by his death. In other words, he would be led against his will. He would be in submission to 
a pattern or a path that he did not want to go. We think of nations that are brought into subjection to other nations because of war and battle. They lost and they're forced into a kind of submission. I, I thought as well of like uh, wrestling <laughs> or MMA. Uh, well, Jesse would like that one. Where you win when the other one is brought to submission in, in essence. Where they're brought to a place where they can't do anything about your superior force and the strength that you've exercised over them. And you're brought to submission. And so that's the kind of ideas we think of slavery, which we'll mention later. One who is forced to submission against their will. One who is made to be, in that sense, the property of someone else. Uh, subject to their every whim and to their desires. So when we hear of the idea of submission, it can be particularly difficult to hear, and particularly when he gives it in relation to a government system that for these readers particularly was a system that sanctioned or supported their own suffering. And yet he says, submit, submit to them. Let that be the pattern of your life. Let that be a decision that you make in response to their authority. This is God's command. But again, it is a command that does not stand alone. It must be seen in its wider context. So therefore, that will be our focus this morning. Again, is looking at submission as it relates specifically to the gospel and how we glorify God in this world. Now again, as I've said, I think several times now, submission is a key theme that runs throughout uh, this point and on in First Peter. Let me just give you a few examples of that. First uh, Peter 2.13, here he says, again, be subject to every human institution. In other words, we are to subject, be subject to human authority is the big idea there. Human authority, human structures, human authority structures that are set over us and in which we find ourselves in this world. In verse 18, he says, servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. If we were to carry that over into our times, that would be similar to saying that employers be submissive to those who are your authorities, those who are over you within the workplace. That would be the closest connection here. In chapter 3, verses 1 and 5, verse 1, he says this. He says, you wives be submissive to your own husbands. Dealing with submission in the home, particularly with wives who live under the headship of their husbands within the home. There is to be an attitude of submission. Over in chapter 5, he says the same thing within the church. He gives an example within the church. In verse 5, he says, You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. In other words, be in submission, be submissive to, same word there, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility. Within the church, within our relationship to the leadership that God has established in the church, it is to be with a humble attitude of submission to spiritual leadership. So that's a theme here that's going to run throughout the rest of this epistle. And indeed, it runs throughout all of the New Testament. All of the New Testament. Our submission in society, our submission in home, and our submission in the church are all to be demonstrations of our spiritual life. Let me, I'm just going to run through these. Just listen. I'm going to mention a lot of passages. Don't, don't try to keep up. But I want you to get a feel for this. Within the home, our submission within the home, Ephesians 5, 24, 
As the church is subject to Christ, so also wives to their husbands in everything. Colossians 3.18, wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Titus 2.5, counsel to young women, be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. 1 Timothy, speaking of elders, one who manages his household well, keeping his children under control, that is submissive, same root word there, with all dignity. Ephesians 6.1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Colossians 3.20, children, be obedient to your parents in all things. In other words, God has established a roles, a relationship, a way of relating to one another within the home that is marked by submission. The submission of wives to husbands, the submission of children to parents, the submission of children to an elder is key to his qualification. So there is to be an attitude of submission within the proper structure of relationships within the home. There is to be submission in the workplace. In addition to what we read, Ephesians 5, 6, 6, 5 through 9, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. Colossians 3.22, Slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth. What is your attitude to be towards your employers, towards those who are set over you in the workplace? It is to be an attitude of submission. It is to be a submissive attitude to that role in which God has placed them and the relationship that God has placed you under them. What about within the church? Again, 1 Corinthians 14.32, the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. 1 Corinthians 16.16, you are to be in subjection to such men, that is, those who are particular servants and leaders in the church. Ephesians 5.21, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. In the fear of Christ. Romans 14.34, women are to keep silent in churches to subject themselves. 1 Timothy 2.11, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. Hebrews 13.17, obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls. What is our attitude to be towards one another in the church? It is to be an attitude of mutual submission to one another. Submission to one another in love and good deeds. Submission to one another in what we owe to one another and by means of service, by means of love. We are to be reflecting the order in the home within the church and that leadership is given to men and, and there is to be a submissiveness in this sense in terms of office of women within the church. There is to be a submissiveness within all of our dealings with one another. How about within society? Romans 13, 1 through 5. Be in subjection to governing authorities. Titus 2, 9. Remind them to be subject, that is young men, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. So there's really no question about it in terms of God's requirement, in terms of revelation, that our relationships with one another within the church, within society, within the workplace, within the family, within the home, is to be marked by an attitude of submissiveness, being subject to one another. 
not by self-will, not by a spirit of independence, not by rebelliousness, but that of coming under the roles and the relationships wherein God has placed us. So what is submission? Submission is, in this sense, a voluntary act of faith. The, the term is, for those who care, it's hypotasso. The basic meaning is essentially this. It's to cause to be in a submissive relationship, to be subject, to be subordinate. That's, that's the main usage of it anyway. And the form of the verb here, now I, I don't usually do this stuff, but there's important. I want to walk through each step to, to help you get a feel for this. The form of the verb is what would be called an aorist, a passive, and an imperative. Those are all just kind of components of this verb. Now, I know that doesn't make a lot of sense, but let me, let me explain that. The aorist is a tense of the verb, and it marks this as a decisive action. He's not so much referring here to the continual, ongoing submissiveness, although that idea is included. It is really to emphasize, however, that it is an act of the will. It is a decision that we make to voluntarily yield to the authority that God has placed over us. That's, that's behind that tense. The imperative, as you're familiar with that, marks this as a command. In other words, it is in the very command, an act of the Lord Jesus Christ through the Apostle Peter, as it's written down in Scripture, imposing his will upon us as the Lord. The Lord gives a command. He's saying, this is how I expect you. This is how I call you to live in this world. And it is with an attitude of submission. So it is an imperative. As a matter of fact, he'll pick up in verse 15... That this is the will of God. It is the will of God. It is what he has revealed as his desire and his purpose and his will for us in this world. It's also in the passive. Which emphasizes this fact. That we are called again to place ourselves under this authority. In this case, again, the human structures. That's why really in some of the other translations, I think it was the ESV and some older, had be subject. And that's really a better translation. Be subject. Place yourself under this authority that God has placed you in. Willingly submit to this authority. Now, there's two key ideas in that of submission. Two key ideas. It has two key components. And it's this. It has the idea of obedience and it has the idea of honor. Obedience and honor. When we talk about submissiveness, we're talking about obedience and we're talking about the matter of honor. matter of honor. Obedience is then seen in our willingness to submit our will, again, to the authority of another. If we submit our will to the authority of Christ, that means then that we obey Him. If we submit our will to the authority of those placed over us in the workplace, it means we do what they ask us to do. That's the basic idea. Obedience, doing the will of another, is inherent to the idea of submission. It is to align your will with the requirements and intentions of whatever is commanded or deemed proper. That's the idea. To be subject to. In terms of government, it means that we subject ourselves to the law of human structures. We subject ourselves to the law of human structures. Whether you want to go 25 miles an hour in a 25 mile an hour zone isn't really the issue. The issue is that's the posted speed limit as I was reminded of recently when I got pulled over. But I didn't get a ticket. But it was a very good reminder to me to pay attention. 
But that is an idea. It is that you obey the laws that they're over you, whether you like them or not, whether you agree with them or not, whether they make sense to you or not, inasmuch as they do not conflict with the clear commands of God in His Word, we are to place ourselves under them. We place ourselves under them. Again, the same idea with servants to masters. In verse 18, and wives to husbands, we will, of course, unfold what that exactly means. But it's to place ourselves under them to do what would be pleasing and right. There's an effort to, to do what is pleasing and right. Young men, again, to elders. Inasmuch as they're acting consistent with Scripture. As rendered to Christ, this obedience, it is a single-minded, unhypocritical obedience. It is a single-minded, unhypocritical obedience. Colossians 3.22 says this. And he's speaking here of servants to masters. That, not, that their, their obedience is not to be with eye service as man-pleasers. As man-pleasers is a great translation of that word. But in sincerity of heart and fearing the Lord. In sincerity of heart and fearing the Lord. In other words, this submission is not to be duplicitous. It is not to be in hypocrisy. It is not to be with ulterior motives. It is to be a sincere sincere obedience that flows out of the heart attitude of fearing the Lord. We'll mention that again later. So a basic application of the command here is that believers are to obey the laws and institutions and authorities of human structure and as much as they do not sanction an action that openly conflicts with God's commands. That's the big idea. But while submission includes obedience, it's also much broader than that. It's far more than actions. As was already indicated, it's an attitude, it's a disposition of the heart. Listen to this one author, uh, John Frame. He says this, Now, obedience is a form of submission. Submission is the broader category, obedience the narrow one. We express submission in ways other than by obedience. We show submission in our demeanor, our respectful way of listening, our willingness to hear teaching or rebuke or gentle manner when we must exhort. So it's a disposition of the heart. That's why obedience doesn't really capture the idea of submission very much. It's a part of it. But the the idea of submission goes much deeper than that. It's much more than that. It has to do with our perspective, our disposition, our attitude. And that's where the idea of honor comes in. So it's obedience and honor is the second part of it. And again, Peter picks up on this at the end of verse 17. The, the, the conclusion, if you will, of what he began in verse 13 in this section in terms of human structures, he says this in verse 17, honor all people, love the brethren, fear God, honor the king. So our submission to the king as the one in authority in verse 13 is not merely to obey the king's laws, it is to honor the king as the king. It's to honor him and it's to honor all people. Again, this speaks of something far deeper than mere obedience. Obedience is an external action that can be accomplished from a variety of wrong motives, but honor is an attitude of the heart. Honor is an attitude of the heart. So it's not that the king is merely to be obeyed here in this command, but that his office is afforded its proper dignity. His office, and that's hard, that's, that's tough. We'll get more into that later. But that's what the command is. That's what the command is. 
The greatest biblical illustration of this would, in terms of human relations would be found in Exodus 20:12. In the command, that's in the Ten Commandments, God at Sinai, he tells children to honor your mother and your father. To honor your mother and your father. This is a command that comes with a promise. It marks it as a foundational to a healthy society is that there is honor within the home. While it assumes obedience, the greater sense of it is of respect and esteem. Some of you all might be familiar. The word translated honor there is kabod, which is very often we associate that with glory. It speaks of heaviness and weightiness. In terms of honor to parents, it has the idea, again, of reverence, esteem, respect. And so the honor of parents to children is then the reflection of the honor we give uh, to God. Malachi 1.6, I won't turn there. It's affording to them dignity and respect. You know the old uh, saying that the kid, he's in, he's in the front seat, he's in the passenger seat of the car. The mother or father tells him to uh, sit down. Uh, it stops standing up in the seat. And the kid doesn't really want to do that. But he sits down, but he, he looks defiantly over at his parent or her parent and says, I may be sitting down, but I'm standing up in my heart. Right? That's not to honor them. It's to obey them, to be sure, but not in the truest biblical sense. And it's certainly not to honor them. Honor them is a heart attitude, a heart attitude. And that's why it has the idea, it's important to note that this submission is a voluntary submission. This is a voluntary submission that he's calling for. It's not a submission that is forced, but it is a submission that is willingly offered. Willingly offered. It's not merely obedience out of fear of consequences, manipulation to get one's way, which if you have children and just live in this world, you know those are all reasons sometimes that obedience is given. It is rather obedience that flows from a heart that desires to honor, from an inner esteem for their person or position. An inner esteem for their person and or position. It is a fruit of regeneration. It's glad submission to the will of Christ and to a will of another. Now, let me make another point. So this submission, then, is the voluntarily bringing ourselves under the authority of another in obedience and in honor. Here's a third point. Submission is consistent with our identity in Christ. And this is, this is really important. Submission is consistent with our identity in Christ. And this is where we're going to connect it uh, as well with the gospel. Notice just in verses 13 through 16 here this linkage. The way that he develops this. Um, in verse 13, submit yourself for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. In verse 15, such is the will of God. Verse 16, do it as bond slaves do lost their slaves of God. We have submission we have lordship, which is a position of authority, master. We have the will of God, which is to be obeyed and followed. And it is the will of God that is impressed upon those who by their identity are slaves of God. Slaves of God. It's not servants there. It's slaves. It's slaves. So to demonstrate this kind of submission that he's calling for here, and in all of those other roles and relationships does not show us ultimately to be slaves of human authority, but it demonstrates that we are slaves of God. It demonstrates that we are slaves of God. 
That's the ultimate binding of our heart and our conscience is not to the human authority that we're commanded to obey, but to God who commands us to obey that human authority. Now, this is really a powerful metaphor, one that those of us who are in the book club will be looking at more closely, the slaves of, the slave, slave, actually it's called, the slave. The distinction between a servant and a slave is this. A servant, while having responsibility to the master, retains a degree of independence or autonomy. Again, autonomy is like the idea of self-rule, independence. A slave is completely owned by the master, retains no degree of independence, and is completely under the will of another. Is completely under the will of another. Now, interesting, in Roman slavery, there was still an identification of that slave as a person, and they could have other things. But they were completely, in a legal sense and in a a practical sense, under the authority absolutely of the one who owned them. They had no personal rights. They were completely under the will of another. That's the idea of slavery. And that is our identification here as slaves of God, when we are such by a purchase price paid for us. Uh, Look at verse 18, if you would, of chapter 1, if you want to. He says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless. Inherent to the idea of redemption is that of slavery. It is to be redeemed out of a slave market. And to be made than a slave of God. A slave of God. He says, we read it earlier. This is why we read that text in 1 Corinthians 6. You have, do you not realize that you are not your own? You have been bought with a price. That's redemption. The price is redemption. The price is Christ shed blood on the cross. The price is the blood unblemished of a lamb, unblemished and spotless. He has purchased us. He has made us slaves of God. And this imagery of slavery is a comprehensive, though not exclusive, description of our relationship to God in Christ. And again, it's hard for, to imagine much of mainstream Christianity embracing this idea of slavery, being slaves to God. I dare say it's hard for us to imagine it for ourselves, isn't it? How consciously do we think of ourselves as slaves of God? But it's true, and when we lay hold of this identity, it transforms the way we view ourselves and our responsibility to others. Let me give you one powerful illustration of this, or one illustration of this, uh, from Murray Harris, who wrote a book, Slaves of Christ. He, He gives this at the beginning. He says, in October 1987, at the annual Global Ministries Institute at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, our speaker was Dr. Yosef Son a Romanian pastor who had been arrested and imprisoned in 1974 and 1977, then exiled in 1981. He forcefully expressed his preference to be introduced simply as a slave of Christ. So he didn't want to be Dr. So-and-so. He didn't want to be whatever. He wanted to be introduced as a slave of Jesus Christ. Now, there aren't many people, he observed, who are willing to introduce me as a slave. They substitute the word servant for slave. In 20th century Christianity, we have replaced the expression total surrender with the word commitment and slave with servant. 
But there is an important difference. A servant gives service to someone, but a slave belongs to someone. We commit ourselves to do something, but when we surrender ourselves to someone, we give ourselves up. We give ourselves up, end quote. So in coming to Christ, in coming to Christ, there is a complete yielding of our own will, our own desires, our own sense of self-rule or autonomy to Christ. We read it earlier. Matthew 16, you deny yourself, you take up your cross, and we are to follow Him. We're to follow Him. And so that's central here to our identity as Christians within this evil society, in verse 16, is that we are slaves of God. We are slaves of God. It's not, our, it's not our option to then lead revolution and rebellion against these authorities because God has not left that open to us and the hen to whom our will is yielded has commanded us to submit ourselves to them. Submit ourselves to them. Now let me note just quickly here two distinctions, however, uh, in terms of our identity as slaves of God and slaves of Christ as opposed to human slavery, the institutions that we see uh, in our, just in, in the history of the world. Uh, and it's this. Christ is a good master. Christ is a good master. In other words, his lordship is not one to harm. It is to do good. It is to lead with goodness and for the goodness of those over whom he is lord and has authority. It's, he, he rules to our benefit and good at grace cost to himself and self-sacrificing love for his glory. By contrast, sin is a harsh taskmaster has as, as its end our destruction and not joy. The wages of sin is death. And the second way is that slavery to Christ is actually true freedom. It's actually true freedom. That's why he says in verse 16, act as free men. You're free in Christ. You're free in Christ. You have freedom. But use it well. Use your freedom, which is true freedom, but use it as those who are free because they are slaves of God. See, there's a certain paradox there. Use it as those who are free to pursue righteousness and do good because you are free as slaves of God. Again, by contrast, sin functions in the realm of deception, promising us a good end and the freedom to pursue pleasure, but it brings, again, only death and misery. Whereas our slavery to God, our obedience to Him, has as its end our joy. So it is to yield our will completely to the Lordship of Christ. And here, again, it's evidenced in our submitting to kings, governors, wives to husbands, young men, those in the church, to the office of eldership, submitting to one another and so forth. Submitting to so forth. And this is something that's important to understand. It's actually crucial to understand. He says in verse 13, again, submit yourself for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. That is an absolutely essential point to understand. In dealing with different issues and difficult situations, I dare say this one point is often what is not understood or grasped. Or it is grasped and it's so distasteful to our human flesh that we just ignore it very often. 
For the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. And this is what needs to be grasped for us to fulfill any of these roles of submission. Is this. Our submission to earthly authority, to human authority and relationships, is not ultimately, not even primarily about the other person. It is submission to Christ. Now that seems basic, but again, it's so often missed. We say things like, or we feel, or we think things like, well, they're not worthy of it, or they did this, or how could I submit to this person who does these things? How can I submit to a government? And again, we'll, we'll, we'll fill this out in the weeks ahead. But in principle, how can I submit to a government that is so ungodly in many of its foundations? How can I do that? How can I do that? It is by understanding that our submission is not primarily to that government or to that person or to that husband... It is submission to Christ. It is submission to the lordship of Christ. Wives who don't want to submit within relationships because they hold some kind of grudge against their husband and they think he's not worthy of that. That's irrelevant. The issue is, is that's the relationship you're in And he has said, submit for the Lord's sake. So your submission isn't to your husband because he deserves it. It's submission to the Lord because he commanded it. Our submission to government isn't submission to kings and governors because they deserve it. Heaven knows our leaders do not deserve it by any moral qualification. It is submission to the Lord who has commanded us to obey them. Our submission to the office that God places us in within the church is not because of any inherent worthiness of the person. It is because God has commanded us to have that attitude towards the office. Do you see the difference? It is submission to the Lord. And there is no submission to the Lord where there is not submission to the authorities in the human structures and relationships that God has placed over us. Absolutely crucial to understand. Uh, he says this actually in 1 John chapter 5. You can just listen. Uh, now, coming at it from a different angle, but I want to apply the principle here. He says, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Now, this is striking to me in verse 2. It's always struck me. By this we know that we love the children of God. Now, you can fill that in a lot of things that you would expect to follow that when we're patient, when we serve them, when we meet their needs. And all of those things are true expressions, of course. But he says this. He doesn't go down any of those, those roads. He deals with that in other places. He says this. We know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. What are God's commandments? Well, to do that, to meet the needs of one another, to forgive one another, to walk humbly with one another, to be in kindness and patience and so on and so forth. So those things are ultimately not because there's a bunch of people running around who deserve that from us and have earned that from us, though that makes it easier. It is because God commands us to do that. 
It's because Christ commands us to do that. And so our submission is for the Lord's sake, not for the government's sake, not for the human structure's sake, not for the husband's sake, not for the elder's sake, not for any of those things. It is for the Lord's sake. The Lord has commanded us. Our obedience to the Lord is measured by our obedience to this command. And it's evidence of our submission to Him, of the reality of our faith in Christ, a mark of our submission to His will. Let me just, I'm going to give this to you. Romans 8, 7. Don't, again, don't turn there. Let me just mention it. But this is, makes this point by contrast, actually. Uh, he's, he's, the, he's in Romans 8, marking out those who have a mindset on the flesh and those who have a mindset on the spirit. Those who have a mindset on the spirit are giving evidence that the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ, indwells in them. They are giving evidence that they belong to Christ. As he said back in chapter 3, that we are in union to Christ, that we have died with him, that we have been raised with him. And, and he says this in verse 7, or actually verse 6, he says, For the mindset on the flesh is death, and the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Verse 7, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God, and here's our verb coming up, it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. What is a mark of unregeneracy is a heart, a mind, that does not consciously, willingly bring itself under the authority of Christ and the authority of the Word. That's a mark of being unregenerate. Regardless of what happens even externally, that can even happen in a moral life. Remember the Apostle Paul was once alive apart from the law before he understood the true commandments, the the true intent of the commandments. He lived with a clear conscience as a Pharisee, morally upright, and yet he was hostile to God. He did not have a basic heart attitude of yieldedness to God, evidenced by his rejection of Jesus Christ and the righteousness that God declared in him. So, what is evidence of our having the Spirit of God and a mind set on the Spirit is that our hearts are at their base level subject to the word of God and Christ's lordship exercised through it. And so here it is in being submissive to human authority. Fundamental attitude of the child of God. Let me jump ahead to this. The ultimate example of this kind of submission is Christ himself. The ultimate example of this submission is Christ himself. And remember, Christ himself, Christ who is in us. Christ's spirit who is in us. Christ's life with, uh, with whom we share life. Or Christ in whom we have life and share his life. And so he is the ultimate demonstration of it. So I'm gonna, let me jump there. Again, we'll cover all these things in more detail in the weeks ahead. But look at verses 21 through 25. He puts right in the middle of this whole section the example of Christ. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. Christ's whole life was a demonstration of his submission to the will of God. His whole life. From his very youth all the way to his death. You'll remember that Example in Luke chapter 2, 51, 
after his parents came and found him in the temple, speaking with the teachers and such. It says when they informed him that they were looking for him and that he was to go back with them, it says that he continued on in subjection to his parents. And that was his whole life from childhood on. The whole experience of his humanity was to be in subjection to the Father. How was he in subjection to the Father? By subjecting himself to all of the roles and relationships that he placed him under. He was placed under the law, Galatians 4. He was placed under the authority of his parents, though he is the eternal Son of God as well. He was placed under a certain authority, we'll look at this later, in the Roman government he submitted to the authority of Pilate. He was obedient. He had voluntary submission, even when it resulted in his suffering, and it was the ultimate expression of his love for the Father, for his own, given to him by the Father, and his desire for the Father's glory. John 6, 38, he says this. This is definitive of his life. Definitive of his life. He says, John 6, 38. He says, for I have come down out of heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That's his life. Not to do his own will, but the will of the Father. The will of the Father. He said in chapter 17, verse 4, I have glorified you on earth. How? Having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Having accomplished the work that you've given me to do. That was the goal and the focus of his entire life. Again, that sounds pretty familiar, right, to what he called us to, to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. Remember, that was in response to him telling Peter, who didn't want him to go to the cross, you're setting your mind on basically human concerns, not on God's concerns. But Christ set his mind completely on God's concerns, on the Father's concerns, And it was marked by his, in every way, doing the will of the Father, not his own. And ultimately, this obedience required that he go to the cross, where it was also fully displayed. So his entire life was an act of obedience that culminated in the shame of the cross. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. He took the form of a slave. And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Even death on a cross. What was the mark of his life? It was not to do his own will, but to do the will of the Father. What did that doing the will of the Father look like? It looked like obedience unto death, even death on a cross. What is the greatest example of his submission to the Father? Matthew twenty six thirty nine. and he went a little bit beyond them. He fell on his face and he prayed, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, here it is, not as I will, but as you will. Not according to my desires am I going to be abandoned and betrayed, sentenced to death by a wicked Roman governor. That's not what I would want. But what I want more than anything is to do your will. That's really 
Probably the greatest expression of his obedience, his perfect obedience, was there. Feeling the temptation and the reality of what he was to undergo and without hesitation and without conflict, ultimately, it was that he yielded his will perfectly to the Father in an act of obedience. And Peter says, that's your example. You want an example of what that looks like? Submission? While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that you might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands. In the same way, you slaves be submissive to your masters. In the same way, you young men be submissive to those who have authority in the church. In the same way, you as Christians be submissive to human structures and authority. Christ is our example. Christ is our example. And Christ did not obey in some mythical or detached state that only seemed to express emotion. Christ obeyed as a man, fully in his humanity, perfectly yielded to the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit. It was an act of perfect obedience that flowed from a life fully and completely submitted to the will of the Father. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And it wasn't easy. Hebrews 5, 7 through 8, he learned obedience. That is, his obedience was continually brought to greater and greater and greater levels as it was tested, ultimately culminating in the cross. And that is, that is our example. That is our example when we think of submission. So when Christ calls us to submit, when he calls us to submit in these relationships and we are to do it for his sake, he is the one who himself has laid down both the enablement for us to do that by going to the cross, removing the punishment of our sin, the curse of the law, by sending his spirit who enables us then to walk by him and to fulfill the law of Christ, as it were. He has enabled us to do that. He's given us the example. He's given us the enablement. And that's what we're called to. So when we are called to come to Christ, we are called to come and die to ourselves, die to our own reasoning as ultimate, die to our own goals, our own self-rule, and submit everything to Christ. Submit everything to him. And the ultimate goal of our submission, let me end with some encouragement. The ultimate goal of our submission is holy joy in Christ. Holy joy in Christ. Jesus said, I'll give you my joy. My word is abiding in you, John 15. There's obedience because of obedience to his word which is in us. And he says, you'll have my joy. You'll have my joy. But there's a little bit more to that too. He says in verse... 22 of chapter 3 speaks of Christ who is at the right speak after mentioning his ascension after the resurrection after 40 days he ascended back to the right hand of God he says in verse 22 having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him so he who calls us to subject ourselves to human authority and these other roles and relationships within our home and the church and society is him to whom all things are subjected. 
He is the one who rules over all of these things. And he is the one who calls us to this. Let me just quickly says in verse Ephesians 1, 22, He put, the Father, put all things in subjection under his feet, the Son, Christ, the Lord, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And what is the ultimate view of the Father's will in this? It is to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heavens, and things on the earth. Colossians 1, it's because he's reconciled all things to himself through whom he created all things. So submission now to Christ is in a world that is in rebellion to him. Our submission in the future when he returns as the king to whom all things are ultimately submitted, it will be in an environment in which his rule is not only unchallenged but is delighted in. But is delighted in. So submission to these Different authorities and structures is hard now because we live in a fallen world and we're not yet fully redeemed ourselves. But in the end, it will be the glad submission to our king. That sin that's resonant within us, removed and we're raised with bodies incorruptible, spiritual, completely under the power of the spirit. Sin outside of us is removed, it's judged. We have every encouragement within us and without us to joyfully delight in our submission to one another and our submission to Christ in His kingdom, which is righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. Romans 15, 14. And so that's the ultimate end. But right now, as difficult as it may be, we are called to yield to Christ. So submission is essential to the gospel. Essential to the gospel. So the question here is obvious then to us. We can't... We can't begin to feel the weight of this and to obey it until you have first yielded your life completely to the Lordship of Christ. Until you've completely yielded your life. Please, and I know you don't, some here anyway, this will apply to, think that somehow Christ is pleased by filling up a pew. Your submission to Christ is demonstrated when you go home and how you act in your home. It's demonstrated in your private thoughts and your private time. It's demonstrated in the workplace where nobody else can see you. That's where submission ultimately takes place. And nobody does it perfectly. And that's why there's confession and that's why there's trust in the grace of Christ. But it is to say that the basic disposition of your heart, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, is submission and yieldedness to him. That's what he calls us to. And when we do, those of us who do know him, we realize that though we sin and though our conscience gets sullied and we need to be cleansed again through confession and the grace that is in Christ, our greatest joy, and you have to believe this, I have to believe this, you do, is in yielding our lives completely to the will of Christ. Not achieving our own ends, but pursuing his ends for us. He is a good Lord. He is a good master. And he has only our best always in mind, even when it seems to be counterintuitive in the home, in government, in society, in the church. When we follow him and we obey him and we yield our will to his, it always will have a good, good outcome. So there's more to say on that. We'll look at that in detail as we we continue in this. But 
I call us just to, to consider that, to realize that we are slaves of Christ and we are to live in this world for his purposes and according to his standards. And there is in that blessing and joy. Let's pray. And then we'll have fellowship dinner afterwards. Uh, so after we pray, just start making your way down. Father, thank you for your word. This is a call of the gospel, a command of the gospel, Father, and our Lord, even when you said that we are to take your yoke upon us, yoke of submission, yoke of obedience. And this is impossible for us to do in our flesh. As you said in Romans 8, 7, it's impossible to do this. It's impossible for the mindset on the flesh to yield to you. But by your spirit, all things are possible. By your spirit, you make that stony, rebellious heart a heart of flesh and a yielded heart. By your spirit, you continually in your children remove the pebbles of our, of our flesh, as it were, those areas of rebellion, and bring them all into submission to you. Help us to see where we are unyielded in our wills. And help us to believe that our greatest joy lies in complete obedience to you, O Christ, even as you demonstrated for us. And help us to make sure that the mark of our attitude in society, in the home, and in the church is one of happy and voluntarily yielding ourselves to the authority and for the good of others. We need your help, O God, and it is to this end we pray that you, Christ, may be glorified in us, which is the end that all is directed toward anyway. So to this end we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.